Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and I'm delighted to be joined today by John Van Rienen. He's Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics and one of our leading thinkers on productivity, on growth, and in the end, on what makes the economy tick. And I'm going to be talking to him today about exactly that. How do we get growth back into the economy? What's happened to our productivity performance? Why have earnings done so terribly badly over the last decade? And we're going to get into a whole series of issues, including education and investment, research and development, and indeed big tech. But first, let's let's start by asking about that productivity issue. What is productivity and why have we been doing so badly? Well, first of all, delighted to be here, Paul, and uh, you know, very happy to share my thoughts on on, uh, on this area. Yeah, so um, there's different definitions of productivity growth. But, yeah, the simplest kind of idea, I think, which, which a lot of people would recognise is that you know, it's, it's simply how much output you can get per unit of input. So given all the, the effort you're making to produce stuff, how much stuff can you make per unit of input? So the simplest way and the most, you know, most important input is people. So, you know, one way to think about that at the kind of macroeconomic level would be uh, output per hour worked. So how much output do you get per hour work? That's sometimes called labor productivity. And that's the kind of, kind of macro thing. At kind of micro level, you could think about this as, you know, you know, cars per hour of work, <laughs> if you like, uh, you know, for a kind of car factory. But if you think about the economy as a whole, it would be kind of output per worker. Now, a more sophisticated version would be where you take into account not just you know, the workers, also how much you know, capital you put in, you know, machinery, computers, buildings, other kinds of things. And if you took those into account, economists have this concept they sometimes call total factor productivity growth, which is taking out all the inputs. But the simplest way is just the, is labor productivity. That's the most important, which is just output per hour and how that changes over time. So that's kind of the notion of productivity. And so what do we know about why it stopped growing? Um, well, um, you know, I think no one really knows the whole story. I mean, I think no one's come up with the, the complete story about why you know, productivity growth has been so lackluster in the UK. Um, I think there's lots of different factors uh, going on. I think the one thing, important thing to recognise is that the slowdown of productivity since the global financial crisis has been a, a global phenomenon. So I think productivity growth has slowed down all over the world, not just in the UK. So in the US, in Germany. But more in the UK than elsewhere, no? Yes. So has fallen. So the growth has been particularly bad in the UK. So you know, one, one factor is it is, is global. Uh, of course, it's been particularly bad in, 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 in the UK. Um, Part of the um, part of the story is, I guess, that um, there has, you know, uh, there's a kind of measurement type of issue. So uh, it's often hard to measure productivity, and many people say, well, um, you know, parts of the economy which are growing, like the service sector, is based on intangibles like intellectual property and software, which are very hard to measure. So maybe we're not picking up the growth. So I think part of it is that, but again, that can't be the whole story because, as you said, you know that's that's true in everywhere in the world. It's not, you know, it can't just be true in the UK. Although the UK has a bigger service sector and also has, you know, may, maybe some more of these kind of intangible intangible assets. Um, 
A third factor is the, um, you know, uh, the kind of big cut of demand which happened after the financial crisis, which uh, also uh, with austerity measures which were brought in, meant there was quite a big cut of uh, public investment and infrastructure, which happened a lot in the early part of the period. And so the hangover of that kind of low demands in the UK uh, also is a factor which um, pushed pushed um, productivity growth down for a number of years. But again, that can explain some of the early part. It's hard to think about why that's this continuing drag on what's happened in the kind of UK economy. A full factor is that, you know, the UK has done relatively well on employment. So um, there's more, you know, relative to many other European countries, for example, unemployment, um, you know, recovered quite quickly. There's a lot more people who are employed. And, you know, if those people are relatively um, less skilled or low productivity, that's a drag down for our productivity levels. A f- another factor is kind of investment. So investment has uh, been relatively low in the UK relative to other countries. That's a, a factor which is also pulling down productivity. So there's lots of these different factors, but it's like, um, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, none of them together give us the kind of yet yeah, the magic bullet of why things have looked quite as bad as uh, as they have. So, uh, you know, my, my personal view is that in some sense, you know, no matter how we got here, we should be thinking about how we get out of it. So regardless of all, you know, the reasons why we have had these, these, pro- you know, these, these problems, this combination, I think, of demand side and supply side problems, the real question is to think about how we try and, you know, galvanize the economy to try and uh, pull ourselves. I mean, one other factor I should say as well in more recent years, maybe the uncertainty which has come with the kind of Brexit vote. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, I think, you know, also had a kind of recent hit to productivity and investments. And, uh, you know, that's another factor I think, to be taken into account. Well, the obvious question then is, what is the what is the Van Riemen um, cure for this uh, <laughs> this, uh, this this dreadful productivity growth you've just um, you've just described? Um, whatever, as you say, whatever the reason, the key is to do something about it. And um, you know, and just so that listeners kind of keep listening. I mean, there is nothing more important um, than than this because if we are to see earnings and incomes rise again at any kind of reasonable pace over the medium run, we're going to have to get productivity um, moving in a way that it just hasn't done uh, for more than a decade now. So so what's the answer? Well, I, you know, I, I think part of the diagnosis of the, the problem of the UK has been uh, we have failed to you know, make long-run investments in kind of key things which have been found to be major drivers of productivity. So I think the the kind of the big failures that we've had is, you know, inadequate innovation. So, you know, um, research and developments and other things which could be good for coming up with new ideas, inadequate investments in uh, some types of human capital and people, and uh, inadequate investment in infrastructure. So I think that the set of things to be to be think to be thought about is how can we get um, the ability to deliver sustained growth of those uh, long run type of investments? And you know, I think part of the problem actually is a political problem that um, the 
the kind of British economic, the British political system, there's a lot of uh, churning and rebranding of policies and short time horizons. And, you know, you know, institutionally, we, you know, we, you could think of other reforms which could somehow overcome some of the problems which have caused there to be, you know, um, an ability to commit to making these type of investments as a kind of policy type of problem. But going through those things, you know, there, you know, there's a lot of different elements to this. I mean, one is like if you look at research and developments, um, Britain has relatively low levels of research and developments compared to other countries. So, you know, we're very good at, we're, we're very good at kind of the, at the elite. So we have, you know, some of the top universities, we kind of come out with, you know, amazing amount of scientific papers. Um, so at some elements, we're very strong, but where we tend to be less good is actually converting those ideas into commercializable innovations. And that's where kind of, you know, the, the kind of R&D element comes into that. So I think there's a lot of um, ways in which we could kind of boost our R&D spend, encourage different types of uh, investment and innovation. Um, I, I'd also say that you know, we, should, we should think of innovation in a wider sense. It's not just the kind of uh, hard technologies. Some of those innovations are in managerial innovations. And so you know, a lot of my work has been on thinking about how management practices can be improved. And uh, you know, that also requires you know, things like investment and training, investment in improving man- managerial practices. So that's one. Human capital is the second one. And I, I know you've written about this, Paul, as well. I think that, again, at the top end, we're very good. But where we really seem to fail a lot of kids is in uh, kids who are not going to university necessarily. But, um, you know, I still, you know, could still do with the kind of skills that you need in order to um, be successful in, in the workforce. So those intermediate skills um, were very, we seem to be very poor at around further education, around apprentices. And so on. So I think that there is a, a big gap there that needs to be to be improved dramatically if we want to both address some of the issues of inequality, but also to deal with the kind of productivity problems. And then finally, an infrastructure, um, you know, with kind of well-known problems that uh, you know around, say, transport and energy has been kind of under under investments over over a number of years. And we need to think about you know, sets of institutions in order to kind of deliver a sustainable. Infrastructure. So I kind of welcome some of the changes the government's made in terms of thinking about um, the infrastructure bank and the infrastructure commission. You know, going back to my point about the policy reversals and uncertainty. You know, what we'd like to do. I, I did this for the LSE Growth Commission a few years ago with Tim Besley. Think about creating institutions which have some degree of political shielding from the kind of day-to-day hurly-burly of politics, where you can use kind of experts, uh, inputs, you can, you know, get some independence of making these type of decisions. And we've seen, you know, this works in many other contexts like the Bank of England or the Office of Budget Responsibility. If we could have more of that in terms of our kind of uh, infrastructure decisions and investment, this could also help the long run. So I, those are the kind of three areas I would, I would kind of uh, emphasize in terms of improving our kind of long run productivity performance. And, and it is interesting what you say about the political problems here, because if I, my guess is, you know, if I'd asked your, you know, one of your predecessors, predecessors at the LSE the same question 50 years ago, they might well have come up with a very similar kind of answer. Now, you know, the world has changed a lot since then. We do have many, many, many more uh, people going through higher education and so on. But the general issue for the UK of that lack of, uh, sort of good technical education and that lack of infrastructure spending and that difficulty translating the top research into commercialization, commercializable 
um, developments is something that's incredibly uh, long, uh, long-standing, long isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, there are areas of, like, on, on education. I mean, I think there have been successes. I mean, one, one of the positive things, I mean, it's easy to fall <laughs> despondency sometimes uh, over these things, you know, you know, especially when you think about the difficulty of getting experts' uh, opinion advice into the debate over things like Brexit and so on. But I think, you know, one thing to remember is that for that 30 years leading up to the global financial crisis, there was an improvement in Britain's relative productivity performance and relative economic performance compared to France, Germany, and the United States. So we had 100 years of relative economic decline from the you know, the 18, 1870s to the 1970s. So although, you know, compared to, say, you know, main European countries in the United States, you know, everybody grew, Britain grew less. Now, part of that was catch up, but then part of it was genuine relative decline. But then there was, you know, 30 years of relative improvement. And, you know, and part of that there was lots of reasons, you know, under Thatcher, under Blur, structural reforms, strengthening competition, but also there was, you know, big investments and improvements of expansion of universities. I think that has, that was a, you know, that increase of human capital at the top end was beneficial to productivity. That's part of the story. But I think what that left out was that, you know, the other half or you know, of the population who are not going to university and were not getting that the same type of access to those, those skills. And, we, you know, that I think is, um, as you say, that's a long-standing problem. But, that, you know, the fact there were improvements of productivity, there have been uh, periods in which the UK has, you know, caught up with some of its uh, peer countries, is, a, is a, suggests policy can make a difference. It's not a hopeless, <laughs> hopeless situation. But it is true. Many of these things we're talking about have, you know, refrains throughout, uh, throughout, throughout British history. I mean, again, not, not always. No, we, you know, we were the first industrial nation. There were, you know, massive changes to um, the investments we made in terms of electrification and the second industrial revolution. So, you know, there is a there is a history there to be drawn on, but there are these kind of long-standing, long-standing problems as well. And I completely with you in terms of believing in the power of policy to to change things. I think part of the problem is that that power to change things is something that happens over a protracted period. It's very difficult to do it within the electoral cycle. So if, uh, if you're changing competition law, if you're changing vocational education structures and so on, you're going to reap the rewards of that 10 or 20 years down the road, not in the three or four years between now and the next election. That is exactly, I mean, I think that is, that is the, you know, that is the precise political problem that, <laughs> you know, for many things that doesn't matter so much if, you know, there's things you can change, you know, quickly and have, you know, quick successes. But for things like productivity, the rewards are in the long run. And it's, you know, outside the usual political time horizon of prime ministers, let alone ministers who cycle, you know, in and out in, you know, in often two years or 18 months period. So I think the, the thought is that, you know, somehow can, can we make institutional changes which, you know, kind of buy politicians time, as it were, so they can, you know, they, 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 they kind of, it kind of puts some grit in the wheel of trying to immediately change a, a policy that your predecessor had and you have to say you don't want to do it because you're doing something different or you have to rebrand it in some ways. I mean, a recent example would be industrial, you know, there's lots of problems with industrial policy, industrial strategy, but it, it did seem to me that we were getting some stability in thinking through, you know, what modern industrial strategy should mean. And we had a set of institutions which were set up and now we just abolished them. 
but <laughs> no, you know, without, without much discussion or thoughts or and all the, you know, the kind of um, human and physical intellectual capital which was built up over that has just, you know, you know not totally being destroyed, but certainly being being dispersed without, uh, you know, without really much thought, it seems. You're referring to the abolition of it. It was the Industrial Strategy Council, wasn't it? Which... Yes, and everything around that has... Uh, you know, so it's uh, that's a <laughs> that's an example of things. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean the, the number of examples I can think of of uh, strategies and bodies and um, uh, you know, directions of travel in particularly actually vocational and uh, technical education over the last twenty twenty five years I've been involved in it. It's every five or six years we seem to completely start from scratch again. But you mentioned the answer to a previous question, John. You talked about the um, sort of the Britain's forefront of the Industrial Revolution, and then you talked about the Second Industrial Revolution and electrification and so on. I think one of the things that really puzzles people about you know the current period is that we appear to be going through a Third Industrial Revolution. We you know we've got the internet, um, iPhones, and um, uh, you know what we're doing. We're over Zoom at the moment. Something you know unimaginable, really not very long um ago we've got sort of these fantastically successful companies like google and amazon and, and and so on you'd think that our living standards will be going through the roof at the moment wouldn't you i mean what what what's going on there yeah no it's 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 a it's a it's a big puzzle um at one level because yeah we see we see all these amazing innovations yet we don't see them in the productivity numbers but this you know, there's history to this so you know my former colleague um at Master's of Institute of Technology, Paul Solo, he famously quipped, you know, we see computers everywhere apart from the productivity numbers. And he was writing this in the 1980s, uh, where you had like, you know, massive growth of personal computers and everything else, but you didn't see them in the productivity numbers. But then you did. <laughs> so, you know, from the mid 1990s, from, you know, around about 1995 to 2004 in the US, there was this so-called productivity miracle period. Where there was a big jump of uh, of productivity, um, and you know that was built partly on the success of digital transformation and the internet and so on. And I think you know there's some lessons to that for today. You know the new technologies today, artificial intelligence, robotics, and everything else. I think so. Part of it is that um, people are still learning how best to use these technologies. So um, many of these technologies, and you mentioned electrification, there's a famous paper by the historian Paul David who shows you that, you know, between the kind of invention of electricity in the, uh, I think it was the 1890s, and the, you know, the way that boosted productivity, it took a whole reorganization of the factory system. So people had to learn to, you know, you could run factories 24 hours a day using electric lights you could you know, later on you could think about the more kind of production line type of system that you know, henry ford introduced so it took these organizational innovations uh to make best use of the new technologies which were created in ways which people hadn't thought so and so i think that the lesson is that it's often it often needs this kind of co-invention of changing the way that we work together with the kind of hard technologies to get the kind of productivity benefits from it. It's not just the, the kind of light bulb idea, <laughs> literally for electricity. It's uh, also the way that that actually gets uh, used and changed. Now, maybe we're living through the pandemic. This is a, you know, w- this will be a moment where we actually start using some of these technologies in ways which we weren't imagining before. So I think part of the story is that, you know, there's these other 
changes that we need to make in work organization to make best use of the new, the new technologies. Another part of it is what we were talking about before is we're maybe not measuring the benefits, you know, so a lot of these things are free, like, you know, when you search on Google, it's not reflected really in, in GDP figures. So part of it might be measurement, but part of it might be also to do with, um, well, I guess part of it might be, you know, you know, the, these are not such fantastic. The, the fact that you can go on Facebook and find out your old girlfriends from, from when you were at school isn't actually wonderful. For, it might be good for your utility or maybe not. Look, looking into the secrets of your private life here. <laughs> yeah. not but, you know, so some of these, so Bob Gordon, who's an economist in the US, says, you know, there's going to be nothing, none of, the, none of the new things we've had are as good as indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing was fantastic. <laughs> Looking up your ex-girlfriends on Facebook is not such a great thing. That's the third. But you know, another thing maybe is that, you know, there are problems with big tech. So, you know, one of the, 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 the facts that we've seen is that so much of the digital economy is dominated by a few very large firms. Main, you know, clearly there's lots of innovations going on and, you know, they've, they've, they've built new things that we could not imagine before. Amazon is, you know, bringing us, uh, you, know, good, you know, good goods to our door every day. And it's amazing just-in-time delivery and, you know, Facebook is connecting us. But they have a lot of market power. And, you know, that potential lack of competition and the dominance of many of these digital markets by a few very large firms may actually be having some negative side effects. So, it, you know, for example, the... A lot of growth often comes from new startup, these new startup companies and new businesses being able to grow. Maybe the power of some of these large firms is actually, uh, you know, making it harder for these new startups to, to enter and grow to the scale they have. I mean, for example, you know, these large companies, uh, Google and Facebook, often buy up promising startups and then absorb them into themselves. And they say, well, this is good because we're allowing these things to you know, grow and, and using our own financial muscle and intellectual muscle. On the other hand, um, maybe they would have grown up to be uh, more innovative and be threats to these dominant firms. So, you know, if you can't kind of kill them off, you buy them off. And that, that is, a, I, I think that's a real concern that although the, these firms have managed to you know, get where they are, partly through their innovations, now they're in such a powerful position, they may be chilling some of the innovations of other other companies. So I think we need to kind of rethink, you know, antitrust policy, competition policy in, in this new kind of digital age that we live in. So part of your um, answer to the question, how should we be improving productivity and living standards over the next several years, is actually changing the way that we think about regulating some of these big tech companies. I do. I, I do think we need to modernise our, our whole, you know, competition policy. I mean, we, we you know, there, there were lots of positive developments, I think, uh, you know, in, in the UK in terms of toughening up competition policy. One of the, you know, strongest uh, findings, I think, in the empirical literature in, in looking at productivity is that competition could be a very strong force for improving productivity, you know, both because it kind of, you know, the ruthless Darwinian effect of weeding out the low productivity firms, enabling the more productive to expand, but also by, you know, incentivizing managers to work harder. And if you, you know, if you're like a monopoly, you can sit back and have an easy life. If you're facing competition, you've got to really, you know, get your act together. So competition is really important. But the, the traditional way that, like, for example, we judge should two firms be allowed to merge together or should a big firm be allowed to take over a small firm? We say, well, now what's their market shares? If, uh, 
you know, if they, if they both got, you know, big market shares, they join up, there'd be a monopoly. We don't let that happen. But, you know, if one firm has a very small market share, then, you know, we may not, we might be relaxed about it. And that's fine in the old economy. But in the, you know, in the, in the kind of economy we're in now, it's really about, you know, future competition. So when Facebook, for example, took over WhatsApp or Instagram, they were pretty small companies at the time. But if they were allowed to develop on their own, they may have become, you know, very big platforms, big competitors to Facebook. And so, you know, these things got waved through by the anti, by the uh, competition authorities. But, you know, I think in retrospect, that was a mistake because, you know, once they became part of the larger company, they no longer, you know, could have developed as independent competitors. So I think we need to have a much more kind of uh, future looking competition policy. Uh, and we need to be concerned, you know, how these firms could have developed, these new platforms could have developed to become future competitors. Now, what the, of course, the problem with that is that, you know, it's very difficult to know. You know, how do we know whether one firm's going to become successful or not? But I think at the moment, the burden of proof is all on the, the kind of government. So the government, this is not just true in the UK, but it's true in the US, you know, the government has to show almost without a shred of doubt that these firms would have become, you know, competitors in the future. If you can't show that, then, you know, you can't block the merger. But I think we have to put more of the burden of proof back to the companies to say, well, okay, you're telling us that these companies wouldn't have thrived without you. You know, what, what evidence can you, can you bring to bear on that? So I think that somehow the, you know, shifting that burden of proof may actually make it harder for, um, for these large tech firms to kind of entrench their, their, their kind of positions. So I think that's an example, but I think more broadly thinking of more of a kind of a, you know, a, a future kind of model of competition. And, and to be honest, you know, the, you know, the UK Competition and Markets Authority is starting to think in these ways. So they've set up, um, you know, a new digital markets unit to kind of look at the digital sector to try and think of different ways in which these barriers to entry for new companies could be reduced to put more responsibilities on, on, on these larger firms potentially to, um, you know, reduce the risk that they kind of um, they kind of throttle off potential competition. So thing, things are moving in the right direction. There's lots of thinking, but, you know, we still need this to actually take place in order to um, future-proof competition. But isn't it, I mean, it's taking a while, isn't it? I mean, we've had these um, sort of big companies around for, you know, they didn't just arrive yesterday, but... Um, the, I mean, is this something that we, the UK or the UK CMA, can do much about? I mean, you know, what we're, I mean, you know, when we think about these big um, monopolies, I mean, we're usually thinking about the the, the enormous US companies, whether it be um, whether it be Google or or, or, or Amazon or, or Facebook. I mean, the is, is the, I mean, are we not pretty much at the mercy of the decisions that are made in the US? Well, you're right that these are mainly kind of US-based companies, but I don't think, you know, individual countries are, are you know, are, are completely weak and hopeless to do anything. So, you know, it's absolutely right that, you know, the main changes has to be with the biggest blocks, which is the US and the European Union. But take the European Union, the, you know, the European Union has a common uh, competition policy, Um you know, you know, violations of competition law can be punished by, you know, 10, 10% of the, the ter- annual turnover of these companies. So there is a strong uh, threat which uh, can be made against these companies if they violate some of the, uh, 
the competition guidelines. So even though these companies are based in the US, they get a good amount of their profits, say, from Europe, the European Union. And so that gives the EU a lot of uh, you know, clout. Now, the UK is smaller than our outside the, you know, the EU. It gives us less clout, but we're not insignificant. So, you know, an example would be in Australia, there was this uh, you know, recent change over the ability of, um, I think, uh, social, social media platforms like uh, Facebook to use um, publishing, uh, publishing material content from other companies. And, you know, Australia brought in law. Now, of course, you know, the, the, you know Facebook pushed back against that. But you know, even a small country like Australia could do something in order to challenge uh, some of the activities that the, the, the large the large companies were doing. So I don't think, uh, even for a country like the UK, were without any influence. I think that also there's a you know sense in which you know the the UK can kind of be a leader in trying to think some of these things through. Um, so you know the there was this the Furman report, Jason Furman, who's an American economist. Uh, he used to be the kind of chief economist under President Obama. Uh, he worked with the CMA to produce a report exactly on this, and these his recommendations or the committee's recommendations were adopted. And that thinking has now, you know, also affected the thinking of the European Union and also people in the United States as well. So the UK can actually, you know, help be a leader potentially in thinking through some of these issues and trying some of them out. So you know, I, I don't think we should overestimate our power. We're clearly, you know, a, a small country however i think we're not powerless and uh i think especially if we can have more cooperation with competition authorities in, in other other countries you know we can we can certainly make a difference well we've um we we've covered a lot of ground there uh john starting off with this question about this um collapse in productivity growth particularly over the last um, decade, which we don't fully um, uh, fully understand, particularly in the context of the technical revolution that's been going on. Um, but there are some pretty clear, at least high level uh, policy. There's a pretty clear high level policy agenda for the future to, as it were, save us from this um, this slough of uh, lack of growth in productivity and earnings and living standards, which centre around, I think, you three sets of investments you were talking about research and development, infrastructure and human capital skills and education and so on, alongside a, a focus on our, inf- our institutional structures and this regulation of um, of big tech. I mean, you know, within that, I mean, presumably you put all of that together and that would be sort of the, you know, that would be the core of the Van Rienen <laughs> industrial strategy, the growth strategy for, for, for the UK. Yes, I think that's that. That's what I've uh, I've uh, I've argued I've argued for. I mean, I, we could we could go into some more details. I mean, I, I think one one other thought to plant in listeners' minds is that you know inequality is a massive issue in uh, you know in the world and in our country. If we can think of policies which you know both tackle growth, but also have a you know a positive effect on uh, reducing inequality, those are the kind of policies that you know are kind of win wins. So what one idea is that you know, often people think about uh, inequality of education as, as just about you know equity, which of course it is. But we've shown in the in the context of the U.S. work that you know there's a huge loss of talent. That many of the people who could have become great inventors, we call this the lost Einstein effect. Many of the people who could have become potential great inventors um, don't have the opportunity because they happen to be born in the wrong place, 
don't get don't get access to education, don't get exposure to being an inventor. And in the US, for example, we think you could maybe quadruple the innovation rate if you could um, reduce those those inequalities. I think the same is probably true in the UK. So if you could think about things of you know educational interventions which deal with disadvantage, you could both try to tackle inequality but also improve. Uh, growth by unlocking some of the, the lost talent we have. So I think that, you know, in terms of thinking about policies, you know, often these these policies can go together to tackle inequality and also growth. Well, I mean, we could go into a lot more detail in, in, in all of those areas, John, and actually maybe we should talk again sometime to delve in depth in, uh, in one of those particular areas. But I think we are probably way past our time today um but that, that was i mean that was just a fascinating uh, i mean really fascinating uh conversation covering a whole range of areas um and, and really getting at you know the most important things facing us over the next um over the next several years which you know we've been interrupted by covid and by brexit and all of these things but actually the under, underlying issues are pretty well understood and the underlying problems that we need to solve are pretty well Understood, And I think I really do take away from what you're saying, John, that in a sense, the real sort of underlying, underlying issue is about our political institutions and the and the real difficulty we have of pushing through in a consistent way to achieve the sorts of things that we've been talking about today. So so the challenge, I think, for the, you know, is is, is simply to completely reform the British Constitution in order to, um, (laughs) in order to make... And and the class system as well, while we're at it. And the class system while we're at it. So so there's there's a a small set of challenges to to leave you with. But but thank you so much, uh, John. Thank you, um, everyone, for listening. If you want to see more of the IFS's work, including some of the work for the Deaton Review, which John is involved in, do go to our website at www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support our work, consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.